This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 35 to 48. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. He comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. But know this. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food in the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given Of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory, for the building of his church, and for our good. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach your holy word this morning, We realize, Lord, that you are the master and that we are your slaves. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see that that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price and that we will seek to glorify you with our body. Lord, that we will be ready for every good work and prepared for every good work, whatever you call us to do. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be eagerly anticipating anxiously even, looking forward to your coming. Trusting, Lord, that you will come at the perfect time and, Lord, that you will find us walking in faithfulness at that moment. Lord, we know the propensities of our heart. We know the unfaithfulness that that so easily rises up. We pray that you will help us, Lord, to see the blessings that you provide, that you give by your free grace for those who are faithful. Lord, we pray that you would help us also, Lord, to be motivated by the desire to not be punished with the unfaithful. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see what you are teaching us here. Help us to see where we fit into this passage. And Lord, help us to respond with with repentance, with obedience, and with faith, with faithfulness for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Baden-Powell, the founder of the scouting movement, devised the scout motto, be prepared. He said that be prepared means that you are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you ready to do, to do your duty? Do you know 
what doing your duty will cost you. Do you know the blessings, the rewards for doing your duty? And do you know what your, what the failure to do your duty will cost you? Do you know what your duty is? Sadly, the Boy Scout movement, once based on Christian principles, has been hijacked like so much of our culture to promote immorality and a liberal agenda. The Scout Oath used to be, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and obey the Scout law and to help other people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Someone once asked Baden Powell, when when does Christianity come into scouting? They said it doesn't come into scouting. It's always been there. It's, It's tied to Christian principle. But now, in our day, as one political cartoon suggested, the the scouting oath is is more like, on my honor, I'll do my best to be politically correct, to establish safe spaces, to fill all gender diversity quotas, to check my toxic, microaggressive male privilege, privilege, so help me, whatever. Many people, and not just The scouting movement have neglected their duty and embraced rebellion against God and rebellion against God's law. Needless to say, these people are not ready for what's coming. They are not ready for who's coming. As C.H. Spurgeon warned, be ready, servant of Christ, for the master comes on a sudden when all the ungodly world least expects him. Brothers and sisters and all who are listening, Christ is coming back. We all must be ready. Many people act like this life is all that there is. They act as though this life is the main act. Let's not. This life is only the prelude for what's to come. Now, it's not that what's done in this life does not matter. Quite the opposite. It matters a great deal. However, what you do in this life matters most in light of eternity. Eternity. This life is temporary. The passage before us this morning, Jesus is really continuing the same theme that he's been following since the beginning of chapter 12. He is speaking of living this life in light of eternal life. He's speaking of eschatological judgment and how it will expose all and establish full and final justice. Jesus is speaking of the the blessings of obedience and the punishment of disobedience. What are you living for? What will the result of your life be when you die? Consider again the C.T. Studd poem I referenced a couple weeks ago. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You only have one life. Are you living it for God? How are you living it for God? How are you living out your faith? Are you ready for the return of the Lord? Or have you grown tired of waiting? I remember very clearly back in the early 90s when I was first saved. And I saw, I looked around and as, as I had now new eyes to see the world and, and I saw the immorality that was taking place all around me in our culture and I was expecting the imminent return of the Lord. Well, it's been almost 30 years And the world is a whole lot more immoral now than it was then. Still, Christ has not returned. But 30 years is is but a moment in light of world history and in light of church history. People have been expecting the imminent return of the Lord for almost 2,000 years. Jesus Christ has not yet returned, but he will. In our passage this morning, our Lord presents a series of related parables that reveal how you are to wait, how you are to be ready for the return of the Lord. 
Be ready for the return of the Lord. Be alert. Be faithful. He will give rewards to those who are ready and retribution to those who aren't. There are essentially two sections here in this passage divided into into, uh, groups of parables. In the first, in verses 35 to 40, the servant and the master. And then in verses 41 to 48, four kinds of stewards. You are in these parables. Where? Where do you fit? Which of these parables is describing you? So first of all, verses 35 to 40, the servant and the master. Jesus begins in verse 35, stay dressed for action. The the phrase is, is actually in the original, gird up your loins. The the long robes that were commonly worn in the ancient Near East, still common in many parts of, of that region today, would get in the way of hard work. They're long, flowing robes. And so men would, would take the, the skirts of the robes and, and tuck them up into their belt in, in order, to, in order to, get, to get ready, to get ready for work. Today we might say, roll up your sleeves. The picture is of someone who is ready to do whatever needs to be done. Similarly, the, the second image is, is keep your lamps burning. Here it's a matter of being ready to do whatever needs to be done whenever it needs to be done, even if it means in the middle of the night. Day or night, you must be ready. And the, th- the third image is really more of an extended parable. He says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So the picture here is, is of a slave was anticipating the return of his master from the, from this feast. He could come home at any moment. Now in that culture, a wedding feast could could last several days, even up to a week. And and so so this 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 slave is is eagerly waiting and watching for the return of his master. And upon his arrival, the slave must be ready for whatever the master calls him to do. So the slave will reveal his character by his readiness, by his preparedness, or lack thereof. Now, of course, we recoil at the term slave. It conjures up horrific images of Africans in chains. However, the the slavery that was in view here in the ancient Near East is a very different institution. And and I'm not an apologist for slavery, but but the the slavery in that era, in that that culture, was, was not based on ethnicity, nor were slaves kidnapped from their own countries. There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called man-stealing. And those who engage in this practice were under the death penalty. Rather, many slaves were taken either as prisoners of war or had even gone into slavery because of financial insolvency. Some had even gone into slavery for, for social mobility. Many careers, teachers and doctors and so on, were, were actually slaves. So we, we tend to recoil at, at the word slave. Brothers and sisters, you and I are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of Christ. We are bond servants of Christ. Ephesians 6 6. Now, now of course, this doesn't have the negative connotation, quite the opposite. Th- throughout the New Testament, the apostles take on the designation slave or or servant of Christ. We are all slaves. Everyone is a slave. You are either a slave of Christ or you are a slave of someone much worse than an antebellum southern plantation owner. You are either a slave of Christ or you are a slave of sin. You are a slave of Christ or you are a slave of sin. As Paul writes in Romans 6.22, for those who are slaves of Christ, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. If Jesus is your Savior, Jesus also is your Lord. Your life is, is submitted to Him. All of your life is submitted to him. 
You're holding nothing back. Now, that doesn't mean you will serve perfectly. No one will do that except Christ, except Christ himself. But rather, is your earnest desire to do whatever it is that the Lord requires of you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You were bought with the blood of Christ. Christ owns you. All of you. And the character of the true slave of Jesus Christ is ready to serve. His or her mind is, is tuned to the master's will, eager to obey the master in every area of life out of a, a heart of love and a heart of worship. What kind of character is revealed in, in your readiness or lack of readiness? How do you need to be ready to serve your master? What duty is required of you in your station and circumstance of life? Are you a husband? What is your duty? Your wife? What is your duty? Are you a father? What is your duty? Are you a mother? What is your duty? Are you a friend? What is your duty? Are you an employee? What is your duty? Are you a neighbor? What is your duty? Are you a church member? What is your duty? Are you ready to do your duty in whatever situation you are in by God's providence? The master will return. When he returns, will he find you ready? What do you need to be doing? I know it feels overwhelming at times. I know you sometimes feel woefully inadequate. You fall far short. I do too. In 2002, I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I'd just been called as an elder in my church in Australia, and I was feeling, I was feeling woefully inadequate for the task. This was at a, at a very difficult, very, very difficult time in the church. And I was already feeling inadequate, but then to compound my feelings of inadequacy, my friend pointed me, my, who had just been made an elder at the same time as me, pointed me to 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? I knew I wasn't sufficient then, and I know I am not sufficient now. But thankfully, the Apostle Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Please go there with me. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 6. This is one of the problems with, with chapter breaks in the Scripture. He's, he's asking the question of, of, of who is sufficient, and then it leaves, it leaves you hanging. If you don't read on in chapter 3, you won't, you won't immediately find the answer. Verse 4 chapter 3. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Your sufficiency is from God. My sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That is not just true of apostles. That is not just true of pastors. It is true of Christians. You are the aroma of Christ. To those who are being saved, the aroma of life. To the ones who are dying, the aroma of death. None of us are sufficient in and of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul says similarly in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Verse 28 especially is, is something that, that, we, that we really cling to in this church. It's, it's a 
part of the one of the the, the the guiding verses of this church. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who is sufficient for this? Not Paul. He says in verse 29, for this I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The apostle Paul is toiling for these things, not in his own strength. He's toiling for these things in the strength of God in him, the power of the Holy Spirit, empowering him to do what he needs to do for the glory of God and for the building of the church. The sufficiency is from God. God will enable you. God will empower you to do all that he has called you to do. You have what you need. You have been given what you need to do what you need to do. Brothers and sisters, you have been given a new heart. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have all the resources that you need in order to do your duty before the Lord. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared in advance, we should walk in them. Brother, sister, you are God's workmanship. Through Christ Jesus, you are enabled to do your duty. God has predestined every good work that you will ever do. God has prepared that work for you, and God has prepared you for that work. Now, if you're still not sure of what your duty is or, or how to do it, I would love the opportunity to sit down and talk with you, to, to point you to, to Scripture that would help you to explore that and to learn what that means or, or to some helpful books that would encourage you in, in this. But for most people that aren't doing their duty, those aren't the problem. It's not that they don't know their duty. It's not that they don't know how to do their duty. They do know what it is and they, they, do, they do know how to do it, but they still don't do it. I was talking to Bruce Ray about this yesterday, and he was saying that in all of his years of biblical counseling, he's found that most people know what their duty is. They know what they're supposed to do. They, they don't need, you don't need to tell these people what they need to do. They just don't do it. Now, there's a lot of possible reasons for this. Misplaced priorities, laziness, selfishness, distraction, Fear, pride, unforgiveness, a guilty conscience, pursuit of pleasure. All these things and more can keep us from doing our duty. And I'm not even talking about unbelievers here. I'm talking about Christians. Real Christians. I'm talking about you and me. There are times that we know very well what our duty is, but still we don't do it. We know very well how we need to do our duty, but we still don't do it. We fail to prepare ourselves to serve our master. And I think a big part of the problem is that we lack the proper motivation. Or to put it more bluntly, we don't think about the blessings that God has promised to the faithful and the curses that he has promised to the unfaithful. There are other fundamental reasons, as I explained last week, a failure to see who God is and, and who God is for us in the gospel. But I think sometimes and quite often it simply boils down to a, a, to a failure to see God's reward and to see God's punishment. Just think about what Jesus has said so far in chapter 12. Listen to all these promises of reward and promises of punishment. They're meant to motivate you to be ready to do your duty. Just, just scroll back with me for, through chapter 12. Everything will be revealed. Verse 2. Everything you said in secret will be proclaimed on the housetops. Verse 3. Fear him who has authority to cast into hell. 
Verse 4. God values you greatly. Verse 7. Acknowledge Christ and he will acknowledge you. Verse 8. Deny Christ and he will deny you. Verse 9. The rich fool will lose everything. Verse 20. The Father provides for you. Verse 28. Seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. Verse 31. It is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verse 32. God will give you a treasure that does not fail. Verse 33. So this passage very much continues in that vein that he's been, been, Jesus has been dealing with throughout this whole chapter of, of dealing with and teaching us how to be motivated in order to obey God. Because of the final day, God's judgment is coming because he will return. So first, listen to the promised reward in verses 37 and 38. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. All you have to do is be ready and you will be blessed. Again, in this context, being ready means being ready to serve your master. To do what the Lord Jesus Christ is calling you to do. He will return one day, maybe soon. Be found doing what you are commanded to do. Anticipate his return. Actively seek and pray for his return and you will be ready. We've talked about this many times. Those who are the most heavenly minded are indeed the most earthly good. Pray. Come, Lord Jesus, and you will be blessed. Jesus says it again in verse 38. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The, the second or the third watch was, was really the, the middle of the night. The, the true slave of Christ is, is ready to serve him at any time, day or night. Are your loins girded? Is your lamp lit? Are you ready? God will bless you. 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 Let this be a motivation to you to obedience. This is, again, this is not just Luke chapter 12. This is throughout the scriptures that God again and again and again promises that he will bless those who walk in obedience. Again, this is not works-based righteousness. This is not as though you can earn God's favor through, through doing good works. This is someone who is showing themselves to be in God's favor because they're doing good works, because the, because the Lord is empowering them to walk in obedience. So how will God bless you? What is Jesus saying that God is going to do to bless you here? Prepare to have your socks knocked off. Prepare to be dumbfounded. Look at the second half of verse 37. This should shock you. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress he will dress himself for service. And we'll have them recline at table. And then he will come and serve them. Maybe you've missed that until now. But do you see what Jesus is saying here? The master will serve the servant. This is a shocking metaphor in, in that culture. And even in, in our culture, it is a, a complete role reversal. The master will be so pleased that he will have the servant sit at table while the master serves. Now, not many masters would do that, but ours does. Ours does. Jesus will serve them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus serves you. Now, there's a sense in which this is eschatological. We will experience the full reality of what Jesus is saying here at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't know what that is going to look like, but I think about this very often. I can't wait to see the Lord face to face. 
and to, to enjoy. If you think about those, those first moments of seeing my Savior and knowing that those moments aren't going to last, that, that I am going to be before His face for all eternity. Remind yourself of the blessing of that day regularly. Preach God's promise of, of the return of Christ and the blessings that belong to His saints on that day. Again, not because of, of ultimately because of, of their works, but because of, of His works for them. That enables them to do their work for Him. But we know these blessings, not just on that day. If you were in Christ, you know these blessings now. Think of the image of, of our Lord. Stripped down and with, with a towel around his waist, kneeling at the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples, washing their feet. Not more than that. Think of our Lord dying for you and me on the cross. Christ became a slave, humbling himself even to the point of death to set you and me free from slavery to sin. God's promised and God's delivered blessing motivates you to be ready. Preach God's blessings to yourself. And now with verse 39, Jesus introduces another parable. This time about the watchful master of the house. This time we are the master. This is a, a different word than the one that is, is translated master in the rest of the house. This is the, the ruler of the house and the house is, is our house. We must be watchful. Jesus says we, we much, must be watchful so that we're ready when the thief comes. That if, if the master knows what, time, what hour the thief is coming, he would not have let this house to be broken into. Several years ago, I was, I was, I was already at, at this church and I was, I was living in the manse, but, but I hadn't yet met Jane. And so it must have been about, about 10 years ago. I'd been a, away for a couple of nights, for a couple of nights. And as, as soon as I walked through the front door, I knew something was wrong. And I didn't quite know what it was until I, I, I walked into the kitchen. And I saw that the side door was, was hanging wide open and that, that the door jam had been splintered. That somebody had broken into the house. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you know what it's like to, to quickly go through the house to try to figure out what's missing. But for me, even, even worse than the fact that there was stuff missing was, was the, the, the creepy feeling to know that there had been a thief in my house. And I made sure after that that I, I got an alarm system. But if I had known that that thief was coming. And if I had known at the precise time that that thief was coming, you better believe I would have been ready. I would have been sitting up very awake, very watchful. If that's the case for a thief in my earthly house, how much more for the Lord and my spiritual house? How much more for the Lord and your spiritual house? Verse 40, and you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't know when the Lord will return. And we can look and we can see and we can, we can watch for, for, for pointers, for signs that He's coming, but we don't know the precise time. We need to be ready. Be ready. Well, now with verses 41 to 48, Jesus shifts the parable slightly to, to describe four kinds of stewards. Four kinds of stewards. Peter asks the question that, that many of us might be asking. Peter is helpful that way. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? 
Is this parable about our responsibility as disciples? Or is it everyone's responsibility? I'm going to answer the question now so that there will not be any misunderstanding. Yes. Yes. Jesus is telling this parable for the disciples. Yes, Jesus is telling this parable for all. Jesus is telling this parable for the disciples and for all his hearers. Yes, he's telling it to the church, for church leaders, for church goers. He's also telling this parable for unbelievers. This parable applies to all. I'm thinking about us here in this local church. This parable applies to all to whom much has been given. Friends, this parable applies to you. You are one of these four stewards, just like you are one of the four soils in the parable of the soils. This parable is about you. It's about me. So Jesus now speaks about stewards. Stewards are were also slaves. They, they were the, the chief slave in the household. They were managers. They were given responsibility over the other slaves, making sure that their needs were met and making sure that the other slaves did their duty. So again, in this parable, Jesus presents four kinds of stewards. And, and his response is to the question is really the application of what Jesus has just taught in the first half of the passage. There is one faithful servant in verses 42 to 44, and then three types of unfaithful servants in verses 45 to 48. There are four types of stewards here. Which one are you? Verses 42 to 44. The wise and faithful steward. Verses 45 and 46. The willfully disobedient steward. Verse 47. The consciously disobedient steward. And verse 48. The ignorantly disobedient steward. So verses 42 to 44, the wise and faithful steward. The wise and faithful steward is set over his master's house. Think of, of Joseph in Genesis. Potiphar sees Joseph's wisdom and his integrity, and he, and he promotes him to the position of being in the highest position, being in charge over his whole estate. Potiphar entrusts Joseph with the house, knowing that Joseph will do what he's supposed to do and that Joseph will do it well. The steward will make sure that the other servants have their daily allotment of food. That the steward will make sure that they, again, that they're doing their appointed tasks. It was a position of great responsibility and a position of great trust. Notice that the steward, though, is not praised for his personality or his power or for promoting prosperity. He is praised for his faithfulness and his wisdom. The steward is faithful and wise. He looks after things properly, caring for the whole household. And this master knows that the steward will, will strive to do his duty with as much care as the master would himself. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul refers, uses this term to refer to the to apostles. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Pastors, too, are stewards of the mysteries of God. We have the duty of proclaiming the whole counsel of God's word. And we will give an account for our stewardship. There's a direct application here to those who bear the most spiritual responsibility in the house of God. So this certainly relates to office bearers in the church, elders and deacons. But don't stop there. You are a steward too. You also have responsibility in the church. You also are a steward of the word of God. You also are responsible to, to practice the one another's to promote and to protect the unity of the church, to give and to serve according to your gifting, and so on. So we are all under this. We are all called to this. Now we're all judged by the same standard, but as we'll see, there is a stricter judgment for those who are teachers. 
First, look at the reward for this, this wise and faithful steward. Verse 43, again, he will be blessed. God will bless the servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He will bless him. Now notice that, that, that so doing does, does, it does not mean standing still. Being, being ready does not mean being still. It means being active. This is practical religion. This isn't just words. This is not just, just talking about the faith, but living a faith that is active and living. James 2.18, but, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my work. You're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Works accompany true faith. Again, real faith is living. It is active. Jesus says in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now the reward that that Jesus refers to here is is forward-looking. It it speaks of of the blessing that you will receive on the day of the Lord. Jesus reveals a, a specific aspect of the coming blessing in verse 44. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So the the wise and faithful steward will be given even more responsibility, eternal responsibility. Like the parable of the minus in Luke 19, 17. At the final judgment, he will will say to the one who invested the, the 10 minus, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You will have authority over 10 cities. So there's a sense in which, in which there is a, a, the primary meaning I believe here is this, of, again, of eschatological judgment, of the, the final judgment when there's a reward that will come to the faithful servant. But I, I think you can also apply this more broadly to present responsibility. That, that faithfulness leads to more opportunities and more responsibility. And so you can remind yourself of, call to mind this reward for obedience that, that God will certainly bless you with, with greater eternal responsibility on that day. But for many, he will also bless you with opportunities for, for temporal responsibility. This is a powerful motivation for obedience. Again, you you can see this throughout the scriptures. Lay up treasure in heaven. In heaven. So that's the the wise and faithful servant. In in verses 45 and 46, we see the willfully disobedient servant. This steward is the exact opposite of the wise and faithful steward. He is not eager for his master's return. In fact, he doesn't want his master to return because he uses his master's absence as an opportunity for sin. Rather than doing his duty, he abuses his position and those he's responsible for. He is violent. He is lazy. He is gluttonous. He's a drunkard. He doesn't help the other slaves. Rather, he beats them. He doesn't provide for their needs. He indulges himself with what was meant for them. Again, this is, this servant, this servant, this steward is everything the faithful steward isn't. When Jesus teaches on this in Matthew 24-48, he specifically calls this servant, the steward, wicked. He's wicked. The hypocritical religious leaders fit that category. False teachers fit that category. Both in Jesus' day and in our day. Judas fits that category. The same was true then as it is now. The shepherd is fleecing the flock. But again, it's not just leaders. It's not just leaders. This also applies to those who have been part of the church but walk away from the faith, like those in Hebrews 6, 4-6. to Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
Well, if promised blessing is a reward, so is promised cursing, promised punishment. Think about the result of their disobedience. Think about the retribution for their disobedience. Look at verse 46. They will be cut in pieces. They will be cut in pieces. This is a horrific picture. It is a graphic picture. There is no mercy. Now the ESV translates this as the unfaithful. And while that could be correct, in my opinion, Unbelievers actually better fits the context. In fact, most English Bibles use the term unbeliever. They are shown to not be true servants. They are not true Christians. But as bad as being cut to pieces would be, it is far worse to be cut off from God for all eternity. Again, in Matthew 24, 51, Another occasion when, when Jesus teaches is he says, the master will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is clearly a reference to hell. Where the unbelievers will be eternally cut off from God, facing eternal torment. False teaching and a hypocritical life will separate you from God. It will prove that you are separate from God. Now, pastors, as I mentioned earlier, especially under the threat of this, we will give an account. I will give an account for your soul. Hebrews 13, 17. James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Again, we'll be judged by the same standard, but with a stricter judgment. Again, this is not just for pastors. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a promise of punishment that is meant to motivate the Christian to obedience. Now the Lord describes the third steward. The consciously disobedient steward. Verse 47. This steward knows and doesn't do. Now again, this is a... He's still disobedient. He's still consciously disobedient as was the second steward. But this third steward is not as... He's still, he's still disobedient. But he's not as, as brazenly rebellious as the second servant. Yes, he's still aware of what he's supposed to do and he isn't doing it, but he didn't squander his master's resources that had been entrusted to him. He, he wasn't abusive of others. He was merely distracted. But being merely distracted doesn't keep him from being punished. He's beaten severely. Now, I do not believe that this refers to the discipline of sons that we read of in Hebrews chapter 12. Because the context here is not sanctification. It is the return of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord. It is, it is eschatological judgment. So he receives a punishment. He is also sentenced to hell, but with a lower degree of punishment than for the second steward. Now the worst part of the punishment is, is still eternal separation from God. But hell won't be It'll be still unbearably horrible, but somehow less unbearably horrible than it was for the second steward. So with this in mind, what, what distracts you? What distracts you? Is it, is it worth comparing with the punishment of hell? Let this be a motivation to you. Let the consciousness of retribution for the disobedient. Motivate you to obedience. James 4.17 So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. 
So again, that list of, of, of whoever you are, whatever you are called to do. Husband, wife, father, mother, child, employee, student, neighbor, friend, church member, Christian. What is God calling you to do? Are you, are you doing your duty? Are you, are you being evangelistic? Are you telling people about Jesus? Are you, you practicing the, the habits of grace? Are you training your children? Are you giving to the church? Are you, are, are you doing whatever it is that God has called you to do in whatever sphere of, of authority has placed you on? Well, finally, the Lord describes the fourth kind of steward. Verse 48, the ignorantly disobedient steward. Now this steward didn't know his duty. This steward doesn't know and doesn't do. He also deserves a beating. God is just. He must punish all sin. But it is a lighter beating than the previous steward and even more so than the, the, than the second steward because he didn't know. He is also punished, but he, he also faces the, the worst part, eternal separation from God in hell, but his suffering will be less than that of the other two. Those who act out of ignorance will be disciplined, but less severely than those who knew the master's will. As we think about where we place ourselves and which one of the stewards we are in this, it's, this isn't you. This isn't anyone in this church. This isn't anyone who's listening to this message. We don't have anyone here who fits that category. Because you know. You know. You hear the word of God being spoken, prayed, and preached week in, week out. The word of God sung. You know what your duty is. Are you doing it? Have you been sitting out of the ministry of the Word of God in this church, but have you rejected the Word of God? Again, I'm not just talking about a, giving it lip service. I mean, in your heart, are you, are you walking in repentance and faith? Are you walking in obedience to the Lord? Children, if, are you being raised in a home where the Bible is read and the Bible is taught. You are responsible. You are responsible. You cannot plead ignorance. And we know that ignorance of the law is, is not an excuse. And the reality is no one is, is really ultimately ignorant. Creation testifies that there is a God and he must be worshipped. We all have the law of God written on our hearts. Romans 2.15 To whom much is given, much will be required. More responsibility equals more culpability. And again, first of all, I need to apply this to myself and to Joshua as, as pastors. We are commanded to give watch over your soul. We will give an account for your soul. And especially for me, where I have the, the superlative privilege of being able to study the Word of God all week. And of all the people in the church, I have the greatest responsibility and I have the greatest culpability. Joshua is, yes, he studies the Word of God a lot, but he's, he's trying to, to, to juggle a job where he's working 65 hours a week in addition to his pastoral responsibilities. I have this privilege. And I have this greater responsibility. I will give an account for your soul. Again, this is not just for pastors. You also will give an account. Though again, not to the same extent. 
You'll give an account for how you've conducted yourself in this church. Have you have you promoted? Have you protected the unity of the church? Have you been been participating in the life of this church as a as a part of this church, exercising the gifts that God has been has given you for the advance of the kingdom of God in this place? For much is who has been given, much will be required. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said, "Great gifts are to be used with great diligence." And great trusts and powers and charges are neither to be, or rather to be feared than sought. Little do the conquerors of the world or those who strive for church performance believe and consider what duty or what deep damnation they labor for. I am concerned for the governing authorities in our country. They also will give an account for how they have conducted themselves. They will give an account for how they have conducted themselves in this pandemic. We are not their judges. They have a judge. And they will stand before him one day. Do you pray for our governing authorities? Do you, do you pray for, for Justin Trudeau? Do you pray for Premier Horgan? Do you pray for Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix? Do you pray for Mayor Bazran? They will all give an account for their responsibility. Do you pray for your pastors? For we will, we will give an account for our responsibility. You will give an account for each other as well. Brothers and sisters, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You too will give an account. Jesus has authority over us all. And we will give an account to him for how we have conducted ourselves in this life. Wait eagerly for his return. Be ready. Be that wise and faithful servant who is eagerly looking for the return of his master. Serve your master by serving his people. Remember that those who rebel will be under his eternal judgment. And those who are obedient to him, to him will be under his, receive his eternal reward. Others may not see what you do for good or for ill, but the Lord does. This is a comfort to the obedient and a terror to the disobedient. Life and death are before you. Choose life. The Lord will return. Be ready. As Martin Luther said, there are two days on my calendar. This day and that day. Are you ready? Are you living your life today so that you will be ready on that day? May God make you and me ready for whatever duty He is calling us to, no matter how difficult, no matter what deprivation it means. May He make us ready for the glory of his name, and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we feel unprepared. We feel inadequate. We feel helpless. We feel guilty. For we all know that we fail to do our duty. Lord, we pray that you will help us to see, to be motivated by the blessings that you promised for obedience, and to also be motivated by the curses that you give for disobedience. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were and are always perfectly and wholly obedient. Lord, we know that our salvation does not rely on our obedience, but on yours. But Lord, we, we thank you and we praise you that you have and are empowering us to walk in obedience through your indwelling Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to avail ourselves of the means of grace that you have given Lord, especially of, of prayer and, and study the Word of God and Christian fellowship. 
Help us, Lord, I pray. In the strength that you provide, walk in obedience to be truly ready so that when you come, we will be found doing whatever it is you've called us to do. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.